Hello everyone, my name is Ildar. Welcome to another episode of Ask Me About North Korea, a podcast about the most reclusive country in the world. In this podcast, I'm answering the most widespread questions about North Korean politics, society, and culture, in a short and concise manner, based on factual evidence. If you like this podcast, I would be grateful if you could share it, leave a positive review, or subscribe. You'll find the transcript of this episode, as well as some commentary posts, book and film reviews on the podcast's website, www.askmeaboutdprk.wordpress.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Telegram. Finally, as the name of the podcast suggests, please feel free to ask me questions in your comments and reviews. I will do my best to answer them in the next episodes. And now, let's start. While it might sound nonsensical to you at first, there really are some Americans who actually live and work in North Korea. Considering how bad the hostilities between Washington and Pyongyang are, one would think it would be impossible for any American to end up in the hermit kingdom of Northeast Asia. Yet, there are some who do, and no, I am not talking about some American tourists visiting the country or being kidnapped. Let us first look at the numbers and structure of this weird population group. After all, there are not too many foreigners living in North Korea in the first place. Unfortunately, the exact numbers are not available, and we can rely only on some estimates, based on the calculations of prominent media outlets like New York Times. The estimates vary between 100 to 200 people, but even those numbers are very stretched approximations. Structurally, these Americans can be divided in three groups. Prisoners of war, POWs, and their descendants. American defectors and their descendants. And staff of international organizations and local universities. Let us look at each of these groups separately, and I will explain how and why they ended up in North Korea. The POWs perhaps would be the group easiest to understand. As you probably know, the United States was involved in the Korean War in the early 1950s on the South Korean side. The Korean War Legacy Foundation, as well as the National Archives of the United States, have some serious documented evidence about the American POWs in North Korea. Most of them ended up in North Korean captivity unwillingly, of course. Their fate was not something to envy as their captors led them on horrific death marches. According to the testimonies of some POWs who were lucky enough to return to the United States, they were subjected to all sorts of humiliating treatment. Every evening and through the night, they walked long distances with practically no sustenance, while rank-and-file North Koreans would throw stones at them from the roadsides. If a prisoner could not continue, he would be immediately executed, while others simply died of starvation and dehydration. One of the oddest events that they were forced to participate in were POW Olympics, organized by the North Koreans and Chinese together in November 1952 at Puktong Camp. While certainly the concept of the event was propagandistic, many POWs agreed to take part as they were curious about what happened to their battle comrades. These and other stories can be found in the video testimonies of the POWs on the website of the Korean War Legacy Foundation. 
While in 1953, most of the American POWs were repatriated during the so-called Operation Big Switch, there were some who actually declined the offer and chose to stay in China or the DPRK, to the greatest surprise of the US government. While it is not entirely clear what personal convictions drove them to remain behind, whether they were forced to do so, the US government preferred to turn a blind eye on this development and not comment on it whatsoever. Officially, there were only 21 cases of such refusals. However, in 1996, publication by the New York Times claims that there were apparently around 900 US soldiers that had never been released by the DPRK, even though the US Department of Defense was aware of it. It is not clear how many of these men are alive at this point. Foreign policy offers an interesting and insightful perspective on why the US government reacted the way it did. Quote, American POWs had collaborated in some form with the Chinese and North Korean authorities in the camps. The US military, government and public had to neutralize these American POWs and the potential visibility of their politics by rendering them again as vulnerable subjects. Brainwashing became the term that grabbed the media spotlight and absorbed the American public's imagination when it came to comprehending what had happened. In other words, to make sense of those who remained behind, these American POWs were painted as men who had essentially not made a choice and were instead victims of an oriental communist regime. End quote. Apart from POWs, however, there were also notorious cases of American defectors, something way more unique and at the same time well studied. Certainly, American defectors to North Korea were a huge embarrassment for the US government back in the 1960s, and the issue was kept as quiet as possible. That was the exact reason why the issue eventually gained a lot of public attention in the 1990s and 2000s, as people got curious. As of now, there have been only seven relatively wide-known cases of such defections. Those people are as follows. Anna Wallace-Sue, Larry Allen Apshear, James Joseph Dresnock, Jerry Wayne Parrish, Charles Robert Jenkins, Roy Chung, Joseph T. White. We have a lot of evidence about the lives of these people in North Korea. Specifically, because many of them knew each other and published a lot of media materials or gave interviews. For example, Charles Robert Jenkins, who managed to leave North Korea after a short trip to Japan, published his memoirs titled The Reluctant Communist, My Desertion, Court Martial, and 40-Year Imprisonment in North Korea. There he explains that most of the defectors made their decision not out of political motivation, but rather out of personal reasons. Some feared of being sent to Vietnam like him, while others were fed up with their poor socioeconomic position in American society and wanted a radical change. Jenkins, as well as several other Americans who deserted to North Korea, were actively used for propaganda purposes. Specifically, they starred in several North Korean films like Unsung Heroes, playing the roles of evil Americans, which made them outrageously popular in the DPRK. Their photographs were often leaked to the international public, of living in the utopian socialist state, with all of them always appearing successful, carefree, and happy. They also appeared on magazine covers and used loudspeakers to try to persuade more US soldiers at the north-south border to try and defect to the north. However, it seemed that their lives were not 
always as carefree as portrayed by Pyongyang. Initially, some defectors seemed to regret their decision and didn't want to remain in the DPRK indefinitely. In 1966, for example, four defectors tried to leave the DPRK by seeking asylum at the Soviet embassy, but the embassy immediately turned them over to the North Korean authorities. After that, they had no choice but to settle down in North Korea. Most of them ended up teaching English at North Korean universities. A lot of additional evidence also comes from James Dresnock, who among all the defectors seemed to be most politically motivated. If you are curious about the details of his life, BBC made a documentary about him called Crossing the Line, also known as Purunnune Pyongyang Shimin. In Korean, it means a blue-eyed citizen of Pyongyang. In the documentary, he says that he was fed up with the old life in America and craved for change. Dresnok restates that he was happy with his decision to flee to the DPRK and that the government takes great care of him. As an illustration, he mentioned that during the North Korean famine of the 1990s, he always received full ratios. When asked about why that happened, he responded, quote, The great leader has given us a special solicitude. The government is going to take care of me until my dying day. Unquote. From what we know, all but maybe one of these defectors are already dead. However, James Dresnick Sr., who got married in North Korea, had two children, James Jr. Dresnick and Ted Dresnick. Both men's fate is particularly interesting due to the fact that they were born and raised in North Korea, so by citizenship they are no longer American. Interviews with them were released on multiple occasions with both pledging their loyalty to Kim Jong-un and also stating that they would destroy the US if it threatened the North Korean national security. This shouldn't come as surprising, however, as both men grew up in a completely closed-off informational space, and even their English has a relatively recognizable Korean accent. Both of them currently serve in the North Korean army and apparently have children of their own. Finally, there are also some Americans who work at the North Korean universities and in international organizations present in the country. Specifically, the Pyongyang University of Foreign Studies and Pyongyang University of Science and Technology recruit a lot of professors for teaching English. These, however, are normally not resident but visiting professors. The numbers of such working residents are extremely low these days, especially after the 2012 scandal related to the publication of a book called Without You There Is No Us, Undercover Among the Sons of North Korea's Elite, by a Korean-American investigative journalist Kim Suki. In the book, she wrote about her six months in Pyongyang, where she taught English at the Pyongyang University of Science and Technology in 2011. While the book certainly provided unique insights into daily lives of North Koreans, its publication resulted in a massive scandal because of a sharply critical tone targeting the North Korean government. The university staff came out and accused Kim of making false claims about them, while some reviewers bashed her for sensationalism that threatened her former students and caused even more paranoia on the side of the North Korean government when it comes to trusting foreigners. Thus, all such temporary residents like Miss Kim are placed under careful surveillance, and their contacts with rank-and-file North Koreans outside of their working environment are not very common. For example, Americans working for the UN or other humanitarian agencies are usually kept within their working or living premises such as hotels. 
Strict checks regularly happen in airports with border patrol soldiers diligently looking for some signs of what they refer to as illegally documented evidence of what you might be sneaking out of the country, be it a diary or a USB. Americans, considering the poor state of bilateral relations between Pyongyang and Washington, officially barred from traveling to the DPRK by the U.S. State Department since the late 2010s. Overall, as you see, the American community in the DPRK is extremely small and its numbers keep decreasing as the defectors and POWs slowly die out. Nevertheless, their stories represent a weirdly fascinating topic of research, both from sociological and historical perspectives. What is your take on it? Did the defectors like James Dresnock actually regret their decision but could never admit it? Are there really some POWs who never returned to the US from the DPRK? Leave your opinion in the comments below or in the review section. If you like this episode, please leave a positive review on the podcast platform like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Also, feel free to provide your feedback on the episode's quality and ask any questions about North Korea that you might have. Thank you for listening, stay healthy, and stay tuned.